Yes, I developed the weapon. But it was the government and the military leaders who decided to use it, not I. That must be a very convenient distinction for you. Does it help you sleep at night? I slept no worse last night than I have any other night for the past 15 years. Welcome back to Delta Flyer. I'm Stuart Hollis. I'm Thad Haight. And this week we're talking about Season 1, Episode 15, Jatrell. Yes, we are. All right, listen, man. The script says you need to insert a bad joke right there. I don't have a bad the joke. The script says... And you can't turn Jatrell into a bad joke. The name doesn't work. Besides, I had an awesome bad joke last week anyway. Jatrell can't melt Metreon Cascades. No, just no. There's bad and then there's unusable. And I think that one counts as unusable. Our synopsis from TV Guide. An alien doctor responsible for a weapon used against the Talaxians believes Neelix may be infected with a fatal disease as an after effect of exposure to its radiation. Okay, it's not terrible. I wonder, do you think Dr. Jatrell ever actually believed that Neelix was infected? No, and Memory Alpha doesn't quite go that way. It says, The scientist who developed a weapon that killed 300,000 of Neelix's people in a war 15 years ago boards Voyager claiming that Neelix is terminally ill. Well, that's not necessarily accurate either. I think the TV Guide one is reasonable enough. Yeah. The Memory Alpha one is oddly specific in ways that it doesn't need to be. Whereas TV Guide is a little specific. Like, I don't feel that we needed to name drop the Talaxians in the description. Mm. Especially for TV Guide to name drop the Talaxians. Because TV Guide generally would write their synopses as if you're someone who doesn't know the show at all. Mm. So how are you supposed to know what a Talaxian is? Hmm. I guess I haven't given it that much thought. I think we can both agree that both of these synopses are better than that incredibly wordy atrocity that we had on Stargate Weekly last week. Hold on. Or will have in the future on Stargate Weekly. Yes. Last week, we recorded our future episode of Stargate Weekly. Yes. Bane. Yeah, and the Stargate Wiki had a ridiculous synopsis. I, see, I, I thought you were talking about the, the TV Guide synopsis, which was literally 12 words. No, yeah, because we had that weird that weird thing where the TV Guide was so short. and the Yes, yeah. yes. But anyway, back to Jatrell. Uh, this episode, it was, the original story was by James Thornton and Scott Nemerfro. Do I know these people, like, personally? Uh, certainly not personally. Uh, uh. They never wrote another episode of Voyager. I know why. Uh, Scott Numerfro did write for Stargate Atlantis, though. Did he write any cool episodes? I don't know. Did he write the one where Taylor's baby gets stolen? Oh, God. Because I'm just thinking, this was a really Neelix-heavy episode that I could have ultimately done without in my life. Interesting. I ha I loved this episode. Oh, Okay. So that's interesting. It was, I mean, it was fine. I just... I mean, it was a Helix-heavy episode, which didn't make me hate Neelix. I didn't... Yay, character exposition. Okay, he wrote one episode of Atlantis. Yes. The Ark. Uh, 
the one with the space station on the, the moon. The space station on the moon. They gate into this space station with like retro. Everything looks like sixties stuff, sixties space stuff. Yeah, and the the people in suspended animation in the computer hoping to outlive the wraith. Oh yeah, it was All an okay right. episode. Well, that was a nice little mini episode of Stargate Weekly inside Delta Flyer. Yes. Excellent. Then, anyway, the the teleplay, meaning adapted for TV. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Was, ori- was originally by Jack Klein and Karen Klein, who also never wrote for Voyager again. And then rewritten by Kenneth Biller, who we talked about last week. He's the guy that started in the writing staff and eventually became an executive producer. Ah, okay. So not everyone who touched this episode in the writer's room then, like, promptly quit slash got fired. <laughs> right. Just Because I was starting to detect this, like, weird theme uh, going on. You know, it was directed by Bob Bobson, who never touched a camera ever again. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was directed uh, It was directed by Kim Friedman, who uh, directed quite a few really good DS9 episodes and a mm-hmm. few episodes of Voyager, including this season... Parallax and Cathexis. Ah. So, speaking of DS9, mm-hmm. we do not get to add a tally to the Voyager one-off count, because Metreon radiation comes up on DS9. Mm. Uh, I guess they ran semi-concurrently, yes? Yes. The two shows? Okay. And then it also came up on Enterprise, which definitely would have been a influenced by... Yeah, this sort of scenario. Whereas the DS Nine one, I didn't pay that close attention to the episode dates to know it, like which one came first. But just the very fact that it was also on DS Nine and then also on Enterprise means that apparently Metreons are here to stay until they kill you. Yeah, it was on. It was on DS Nine after Voyager. Ah, okay. So, all right, we don't have that counter. Uh, so importantly. One other sort of person thing is uh, the character of Dr. Jatrell is portrayed by James Sloyan, who was also on an episode of The Next Generation and a couple episodes of Deuce Space Nine. Hmm. Uh, on Next Generation, he was in the episode of The Defector, where he plays a Romulan admiral who defects to the Federation. I don't know names. <laughs> And on DS9, he had a recurring role as Dr. Mora, who was Odo's uh, finder, stepfather, the scientist who originally... I don't know if finder is a word that you can use there. Discoverer? Yeah. Yeah. The scientist who originally worked with Odo and got him to become more than just a pile of goo. Hmm. I mean, semi-sort of adoptive father. Yeah, that's why I said stepfather, sort of. Ish. But their relationship was complicated. Wow. Aren't all things when it comes to Odo, except justice? In fact, except justice, yes. Yes. I wonder what... What's the guy's name from the from, from Shea Sandrine? Oh, man, I don't remember. The the pool player. What's his yeah, the guy name? who doesn't really exist. Oh. Yeah, whatever. Fast Eddie. Uh, <laughs> that works. Was it really? Yeah, yeah. No, it's no. not. But. <laughs> but I wonder what kooky nickname he would give to Odo, since we had Vulcan Slim and Tom Terrific. Yes. I also wonder what his nickname is for Neelix. 
Mm. The tacky Talaxian? Probably. Yeah. I mean, you've seen Neelix's fashion sense. Yes. All the time. I'm starting to think, and I wish we had, I had started like keeping track of just how many times the hat does show up. Yeah. Anyway. So... I really like this episode. I think it's uh, I think it's certainly one of the heaviest episodes of the season, and I like that we explore Neelix in a serious way. I and I thought that uh, the character of Doctor Jutrell was portrayed very well. I agree that Jutrell was portrayed very well, and he's swell. You can tell. I did like towards the end when he's. Uh, knocked out Neelix and turned off the doctor. How? Why was he able to turn off the doctor? Because he heard the same command. I understand he knew how to say the words. Why did the computer accept his command? That is a very good question. I feel like the ability to turn off the holographic doctor shouldn't be something that just anyone can do. Right. Although just anyone can do it because that was actually the doctor's complaint in an earlier episode that crewman so-and-so turned him off. Yes, crewman so-and-so, not random visitor so-and-so. Mm, How do they not have, like, different privilege levels for various people? He was issued a comm badge because they then tracked down Dr. Tuchel. Dr. Tuchel deactivated me. He's gone now. Computer, locate Dr. Tuchel. Dr. Tuchel is in transporter room one. It was kind of funny having Dr. Tuchel be said by like four different people and the computer in rapid succession Mm. so he was clearly issued a comm badge so the computer could track where he was and that's all well and good Mm -hmm. but why was he issued a freaking command privileges he should have access to his quarters and the replicator for food only like how is this hard that's fair and being able to tap his comm badge be like doctor you know captain i need to talk to you well it did seem like he was locked out of the transporter because i don't know if you noticed but when they when he was in the transporter room just before Janeway comes in, mm-hmm. the, it's making the standard, I'm not going to do what you're trying to do noise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was time for him to pull his chip card out of the transporter. <laughs> Quite. I do appreciate that most stores have transitioned away from the eh, 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 as the sound of success. Not all, but uh, yes. I know, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, no, I, I did notice that, and I wasn't sure if that was the transporter locking him out or him being like, how do I touch these buttons? So this episode for me, uh, I don't know if it, if it was because it was Neelix heavy that I wasn't super crazy about it, or the fact that it was such a very clearly obvious atom bomb metaphor. I'm halfway surprised that Jatrell didn't give like a weird spin on I am become death destroyer of worlds. Some of his quotes were lifted from Oppenheimer, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they were. Like I said, I'm kind of just kind of surprised they didn't like find a way to t- like like spin that one, you know. Mm. And as those things go, it was well done. Part of me feels surprised that Neelix didn't immediately recognize him. As the guy who killed hundreds of thousands of his people? I kind of feel like... I mean... Neelix would probably recognize the face of whatever the leader of the Hakonians was. Yeah. But, I mean, obviously it's not quite the same thing, because I didn't personally lose anything in World War II. 
But sure. like, I could pick Hitler out of a lineup, but I couldn't pick Hermann Goering out of a lineup. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Or, well, I guess Rommel as those things, as, as Nazis went, I think Rommel was mostly just a general. Yeah, I wouldn't list Rommel on the same level as Hitler or Goering or Goebbels. Right. I think I was thinking of Goebbels when I said Rommel, and then as soon as I said Rommel, I meant Rommel. And then whenever I see Goebbels, I always want to pronounce it Geobels. Okay, yeah. No, uh, that's not that's not where my head goes. Uh, I think Gibbles. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because of the nibbles. Nibbles with Gibbles, sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you can't tell, listeners, we're from central Pennsylvania. I think uh, they can now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The potato chip capital of the known universe. It is, actually. Yeah, I know. <laughs> also the pretzel capital of the known universe. So there were a couple of things about this that, uh, as they were happening, I was kind of wondering if they could have been played out differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how better to phrase that. Uh, when So Neelix is talking with Kess in his galley, mm-hmm. and she is trying to, you know, she and her Kessie sort of way is trying to make Neelix understand that it's okay to talk about things. And the captain comes in and is like, yeah, I have something like important to tell you. And he says, Nothing you tell me could make this day any more disturbing than it's already been. And I half expected him, because just like how he ended that statement, I was expecting him to say more words. And I was expecting those more words to be, unless you're about to tell me that I'm dying. Ha ha. <laughs> but then also his nightmare sequence. He's facing off against what is clearly Jatrell in the shadows, but it, it's his voice yes. coming in. And I kind of wanted everyone around him to be using his voice. I thought it was kind of cool that they used Kess for the girl. No, that was fine, but it should have been Kess as the girl with Neelix's voice. That would have been weird. Yes, and more weird than Jatrell having Neelix's voice. But since the whole thing was supposed to be this in his own mind, him squaring down him uh squaring off with himself mm-hmm. that was why i think that hmm. hmm i did like that they do sort of they never actually tell us what started the war or any of that but i like that they heavily imply that neither side was really in the right i don't know if i noticed that in any of it i, I mean i definitely caught jatrell asking me like how many people did you kill in the war as if however many it was, added up to 300,000 plus. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously the 300,000 plus was bad. But, like, Neelix mentioning that the reason he, he, uh, you know, was a draft dodger was that he told himself Mm -hmm. that the war wasn't right. Well, obviously that may have been just what he told himself, but if the war was actually justified, he wouldn't have been able to tell himself that. That's a strong point. Okay, I can't refute that. Yeah. I like, because obviously, you know, this is, Star Trek is an allegory and it's trying to tell us, you know, <laughs> war is bad, okay? <laughs> right. So interestingly, uh, mm-hmm. there's actually some disagreement on the Star Trek production staff over whether or not this was a metaphor for Hiroshima. What? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I mean, I suppose it could have also been a metaphor for, I mean, let's see, this was... This was released in May of 95. It could have been a metaphor for Iraq 
and the it wasn't gas that Hussein used on his own people. It wasn't, but it's not. It's really like it's yeah. It. I don't know how you watch this and not think that it's a metaphor for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But anyway, Jerry Taylor, who was one of the executive producers, I've seen their name often, said that it, it was pretty clear that it was a Hiroshima, that Hiroshima metaphor. However, Michael Piller, who was also one of the executive producers, also they are both two of the creators of the show, uh, mm. said that basically said that not every show is making an allegory. Lies. And it's Star Trek, so I think most of them really are, but there are some episodes that aren't allegories, but this is definitely one that is an allegory. Like, how could you not say that this is... Yeah. But anyway, Michael Piller was obviously, you know, he personally didn't think it was, so... Fine, well, it was allegorical. Well, we won't hold that against you. That's for each man to decide for himself. Apparently, I need to rewatch the A Knight's Tale because I never get your references. You get so few of my references. I'm sorry. That's it. You know what? I, I need another co-host. <laughs> okay. <laughs> find one. I'm going to call Ben. Oh, man. I was about to say, where are you going to find one? But then I'm like, oh, man, Ben would totally do it. Yes. <laughs> well, I'll just have to make my own comp- competing podcast. <laughs> Delta Blackjack and Hooker's Flyer? Yes, quite. <laughs> <laughs> so, I have to wonder... When Neelix politely declines visiting with Jatrell again at the beginning, at, at, towards the beginning of the episode, mm-hmm. are the Karelian eels more eely than just eels? Can you just say eels? No, because it's Star Trek. And yeah. That's what they do. But bonus points to Neelix, shortly thereafter, he does use parsecs correctly. Yeah. Well, it's Star Trek. That's what they do. No, it's not. Star Trek, I don't think, has ever used parsecs incorrectly. Oh, okay. So what they do is use parsecs correctly, but they'll just, you know, throw any other sort of techno babble at the wall and see what sticks. Yes. But I was, I was, yeah, commenting that I can only think of one major star franchise that uses parsecs incorrectly. Hmm. That's fair. Okay. So what else did you like about this episode? Since you liked it, and I was just sort of like, eh. Well, I covered most of what I liked about this episode. Uh, but oh. This is, I think we can add this episode to the list of episodes in which Chakotay is, could have been used, replaced by a potted plant. Yes. He has a line on the bridge when Janeway asks if there's any, been any word from Jatrell. It's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. There's probably one from earlier in the episode, too. Yes. In this episode, Chakotay is played by a slightly moldy, off pineapple. Although, honestly... I can't remember a single Harry Kim line. Was Harry Kim in this episode? I think so. Tom and Tuvok are because they're there at the very beginning, but Harry wasn't there, like, cheering on anybody. Well, he was probably on the bridge, right? When we first cut to the bridge, a female ensign, like, crosses the screen, but obviously she's not Harry Kim. Uh, at another point, the turbo lift opens and someone else in yellow steps off, but it's not Harry Kim. I honestly don't think we saw Harry Kim in this episode. We had Balana, Tuvok, sure a little bit of Chakotay, 
I mean, I'm not going to, like, yeah, I'm just pretty sure, but it sure seemed like we had everyone from the main cast except Harry Kim on this episode. Nope, Harry Kim was in the episode and tells us that the shuttle was hailing us. Ah, speaking of the shuttle, how stinking big is Voyager's stinking shuttle bay? Yeah, there's some memes on the internet about that. Like Voyager is basically 95% shuttle bay. It has to be. Like, they've already got their own shuttles in there. And they've got Neelix's ship, I assume, still tucked uh, yeah. tucked away in there. I mean, we he don't. Takes it's... his ship at, uh, when he spoilers leaves in the seventh season. Right. Cool. And then there's still somehow also room left over for Jatrell's shuttle. Come on now. Yeah, and there's going to be room for a truck and a Delta flyer, and yeah, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Is yes. what it is. Also, they have a lot of shuttles. That's also kind of ridiculous. I mean, Unless I guess we can assume no, they can't replicate shuttles, right? They could replicate. I mean, you wouldn't download a car. <laughs> I guess they could replicate all the parts and build a shuttle, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, yes, that was yeah. They definitely have a big shuttle bay, so I will give you that. But yeah, I think I don't know what I was going to say. Nice. Sorry. Uh, I do have... I did feel like the end, the plot... mm, I think they gave up on Jatrell's idea too soon, too quickly. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it clearly kind of worked, and I feel like if they managed to get 49% of a Talaxian on the first try... You know what I'm saying? Okay, shop this out. Like, like keep, like, just keep workshop shopping this idea. They are able to get forty nine percent on their first try. Their second try, they can get up to fifty five percent, et cetera, et cetera. Multiple attempts later, mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of people died. How long is Voyager going to sit in orbit, pulling people out of the cloud one at a time? That is a fair point. Okay, so they're not going to. So they're going to give their transporter technology to the whatever people? Ooh. Yeah, they're not going to do that. Right. Technology that, yeah, sure, they largely only use for sending people to places, but throwing it back to Stargate again can also very easily be used to transport weapons to places where they shouldn't be. Yeah. Hermia's not going to like that. (laughs) Man. (laughs) You get my references. That would have been a strong contender for, like, (laughs) if there had been, like, a best friend pairing. Mmm. Those two. (laughs) On board the Daedalus. (laughs) I did like Dr. Novak. I wish she had appeared more often. (laughs) Yes. So I want to talk a minute because it is an allegory for the bomb mm-hmm. about Jatrell saying that the weapon was inevitable. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing something once. It was a book that was written by somebody talking about how, and you and I, I think I've talked about this, the idea that, you know, Americans made the bomb. I, Germans were working towards the bomb, but were actually further off than a lot of people think. And the Russians made the bomb. Yeah. Americans and Russians made the bomb independently of each other. I'm yes. sure there was a lot of espionage going on. It almost certainly would have taken the Russians longer if Americans hadn't made the bomb when they did. 
Oh, right, and and potentially the Americans were also spying on the Russians to see what their re- where their research was going. But for example, to my understanding, Stalin knew oh, that yeah. America had the bomb before we dropped it. Yeah, um, I think he was mildly surprised about like when exactly like the first test happened, but he knew that they were getting close to a test. Yeah. However, it's really hard to make the bomb. It's only been like invented like three or four times. Uh, any any nation after that point who has made their way to it, and maybe it's easier today in 2018 to to like use the research widely available to to get at it without having to have like help from someone who's already made the bomb, mm-hmm. but. My understanding is is that like unless you've had help from someone who's already made the bomb, you're not going to get the bomb. Right. And that's how England and France etc got it. We just yeah. told them how to do it. And that's how China got it. They got it from Russia. Right. Um and I have to assume that North Korea got it from China or Russia. Probably. Yeah. But like I said, I mean like in this modern day, I suppose maybe it'd be easier, but did India get it from someone else? That I'm not sure. They may have genuinely invented it i'm not a bombologist so his statement of the it was inevitable and like you know like one you know one scientific discovery leading to the next in an endless chain of we're gonna kill everybody i i I have to wonder how true a statement like that is some things are inevitable some things are not Mm. you know like an inevitable chain of stuff from like the very first radio to a cell phone that's an inevitable chain of discovery yeah but the very first radio is not an is not an inevitable invention. That's fair. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know about that one either. Uh, I I can see where he was coming from with that. But yes, I I also see where y- your point on that. I do also have a complaint about this episode, um, mm-hmm. where it follows the standard trope of the character appears and seems to be perfectly healthy, but is actually about to die. Well. We don't know what a perfectly healthy, not Harkonnen. No, not, uh, no, Hakonnen. Hakonnen. Yes, Harkonnen okay. is something else entirely. Different sci-fi franchise altogether. I don't think we've referenced that one yet. Dune? Yeah, I don't think so. That's impossible. The references must flow. Hmm. Yeah. Man, I feel terrible that we haven't refer- re- referenced Dune. Although, this does relate nicely back to Dune, since, like, the... They always talk about, like, the family atomics, because... Mm, good call. At the time that Dune was written, that was, like, the most powerful weapon that he was, like, willing to imagine, I guess. Yeah, they used it to destroy the shield wall surrounding the city to allow the sandworms to attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know things about stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Jatrell goes from... I mean, obviously we had Chekhov's weakness, but... Yes. He goes from appearing to be mostly healthy... Able to walk around and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, blah, I hear what you're blah, saying. To completely dead by the end of the episode, and that's a trope that's used a lot, and it bugs me every time it's used because I feel like a disease that he has had for 15 years. Well, remember what he says is that it just sort of like manifests and gets very, very bad all of a sudden. He had said that the rate of decay is highly variable. We have found that it's sometimes years before Batrimia sets in. Someone can be a carrier 
not a carrier, but like can have it within them for a really long time without having any symptoms. Hmm. All right. I, I recognize the existence of and propensity of the trope. Like I, I'm agreeing with you on that front. Mm-hmm. I'm sure uh, it has a name, but I don't sure. frequent TV tropes enough to know. Right. And I also agree that you know he it's uh that he would have had it in there like for fifteen years or so, but I don't think he's been like slowly dying for fifteen years. Hmm. All right. Well, certainly he was certainly not dying any more quickly than he normally would have been for the past fifteen years. Mm. And then he was. Well, yes, obviously. Yeah, death by metrion radiation is like so many things in this life. It they it happens slowly, and then all of a sudden. So I have. A point about Neelix and a point about Turchell that are completely unrelated to each other. Okay. So with Neelix, there was very little to complain about with Neelix in this episode, other mm-hmm. than that stupid hat. Other than the stupid hat. At one point when he was talking with Kess, after he has found out that he is going to die, except surprise, he's not going to die. Um, he's talking with Kess, and he's saying that, you know, he met her and then found out that her species only lived seven or eight years, and he fell in love with her and then started getting the idea of, like, oh, God, seven or eight years, she's going to die, and then I'm going to be all alone. But now I don't have to worry about it, because I'm going to die first. I fell in love with you without knowing how lonely it would be to live without you after you're gone. Now that... I'm going to die first. I don't have to worry about it. It's like, and you're not concerned about how she's going to feel living alone for the rest of her life because you're a big dumb jerk? Yeah, there is that. It, I mean, like, other than the stupid hat, it was like the like the big Neelix negative in this episode. They just stuck out to me because everything else seemed to be going so swimmingly. Hmm. Okay. So I am going to interject because I found the TV trope. I finished my sentence. You can interject now. Yeah, I waited till you finished your sentence. So the trope is called You See I'm Dying. And it is actually named for... So a fun fact for me is that sometimes... (laughs) Well, Go ahead. (laughs) It's called You See I'm Dying, and it's actually named from a Star Trek episode. (laughs) The episode was called You See I'm Dying? No. uh, Oh. No, it... The the example they give is from Oh, okay, episode. okay, okay. Uh, the Deep Space Nine episode, Ties of Blood and Water. Gotcha. Yeah, he... Jotrell was very stoic about, well, I'll be dead in three days. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I suppose... He, one way or another, he was, he's been living with this for a while. Yeah, this wasn't a surprise. Yeah. I, I did like his turn of phrase about... Like, I certainly slept no worse last night than I have for any night for the past 15 years, which Neelix interprets as, I slept like a baby, and in reality, it's probably like, I'm haunted by nightmares every night. They weren't any worse yeah. last night. Yeah, that's how I took it. <laughs> yeah. and But the point that I want to make about Tertrell was, and made me think of better off Ted of all things, mm-hmm. when it was, well, we never expected the radiation poisoning. We just expected them to get blown up in the bomb. And I was thinking of, we were expecting everyone to get, you know, we didn't expect anyone to be severely snuggled. <laughs> yes. Nice. By the bunny. You dropped a bunny out of an airplane? <laughs> no, of course not, sweetheart. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's where we 
come on again to the ham-fisted Hiroshima metaphor because yeah, we didn't expect leukemia. We had no idea leukemia was going to be a thing. Yeah. But dropping it in order to exact an unconditional surrender? Yes. That was like Yeah. The 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 very first time that Neelix is talking about what happened to this colony and then like as soon as he says the words we gave an unconditional surrender. It's like, oh, it's a, okay. It's a Hiroshima metaphor. So, fun fact. Bring it. Not really fun fact. Oh. Fact. Oh. Don't bring it, then. <laughs> so, we used the bomb in real life to exact an unconditional surrender from Japan. And if we had not used the bomb, we were gearing up for an invasion of Japan. And we didn't finally run out of the purple hearts we made for that invasion of Japan until the second Iraq war. Yes, I knew that. I also knew that the Soviets were gearing up for a massive invasion of Japan as well. And all signs were pointing to the emperor was going to surrender anyway, but Truman really didn't want to give Manchuria to Russia. Yep. Russia invaded Manchuria the day we dropped the bomb actually. Yes. And they had some sort of like, gentlemen's divvying up the world agreement <laughs> and it ended up not mattering at all vis-a-vis truman because china ended up going communist and allying with russia anyway yeah <laughs> oops so yeah. so i have a final question for you mm-hmm. do you think that animated suspension is different from suspended animation i was wondering that actually so yes you do think it is different but you're not sure how either yeah that's more or less it. Cool. So not to leave you all in suspended animation until next week where we discuss learning curve, but this is our episode. Mm-hmm. As you hopefully caught because you're very careful listeners, uh, we have another podcast, Stargate Weekly, so if you enjoyed Thad and I nerding out about 20-year-old sci-fi, check that one out as well. You can find and review both of our podcasts on your podcast player of choice. You can also reach out to us at our email address, deltaflyerpod at gmail.com you can find me on twitter at gamicus you can find me on twitter at tyrannicus and you can find and follow the show at deltaflyerpod and that's our show yep you know what else is weird hmm pineapples neither come from pine trees nor are they a kind of apple it's the only food that eats you back